And so today we're going to we're going to look at something that's going to be a major turning point in the book of Acts and uh, today you need to know on the front end there's going to be some parts of this not just a part but some parts that might be considered uh, politically incorrect. So uh, are you guys up for a little political incorrectness today? All right. Well, we'll we'll see, won't we? <laughs> so there on the top of your outline Each week I like to give a little bit of the timeline. So Acts chapters 1 and 2, that takes place in 30 AD. We're going to be looking at the life and ministry of Paul the Apostle. But some things that that we've highlighted before, this will be the last time that we highlight them. But uh, there on your outline in 36 AD, and you want to write that down, Saul, we will know him as Paul, becomes a believer. And when he becomes a believer, he goes and he spends three years in the Arabian desert spending time with the Lord, growing in his faith. And so that takes place from 36 to 39 AD. And then we find as we go forward, fast forward, we talked about in Acts chapter 11, there was a church that was started in Antioch. And I'm going to put a map up real quick. Antioch is up in modern day Turkey. But if you look at the bottom of the map, you'll see Jerusalem. And that's in the southern part of Israel. You go a few hundred miles up to where you get into to Turkey, modern day Turkey. And there is this city called Antioch. Antioch was one of the three largest cities in the known world at that time. A number of Gentiles, not Jewish people, but Gentiles become believers. And that church really begins to flourish. So the church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas to to this church in Antioch. And Barnabas is there for several years and he realizes that he needs some help. So it's in 46 AD that Barnabas goes to Tarsus to find Saul or Paul. And uh, Saul or Saul will we'll know him as Paul. And that's in 46 AD. So Paul or Saul has been a believer for a number of years, kind of off the, um, off the radar, you might say. But it's in 47 AD that Saul, we know him as Paul, goes to Antioch and he spends the year there and he's teaching the, the, the congregation along with Barnabas. And it's in that time that there is a prophecy. And the prophecy says that, that there will be a famine and that famine will cover the entire known world at that time. And so here's this church in Antioch. And so they, they say, well, how do we respond? But they've been sitting under the teaching of Saul and Paul. So in Acts chapter 11 and verse 29, they decide to take up an offering. They believe if we take up an offering now, partner with what God is doing, God will respond by taking care of us in our time of need. So in verse 29 of Acts chapter 11 it says, and in the proportion that any of the disciples had means each of them determined to send a contribution for the relief of the brethren living in Judea. But then in verse 30 it says, and this they did, sending it in charge in the charge of Barnabas and Saul, we will know him as Paul, to the elders. So, so they send this offering down to Jerusalem from Antioch. They send it by Barnabas and Saul. And keep in mind that Barnabas early on is always mentioned first. He's the, the lead guy. Paul is ministering, Saul is ministering under Barnabas. So, so Barnabas is the lead pastor of that church. Well, they go down to Jerusalem, they drop off the offering. We looked at this story in Acts chapter 12, but if you go to the last verse of Acts chapter 12, last verse it says, and Barnabas, that's verse 25, and Barnabas and Saul, and keep in mind Barnabas is always listed first because he's in charge. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who was also called Mark. Now, 
they will bring back the man that we would know as John Mark. He will write the Gospel of Mark. He is either the nephew or cousin of Barnabas. So he's, he's related to, to Barnabas. And so Acts chapter 13 is going to begin in about 48 AD. And you want to write that down. Now the reason that's so important is that Paul, we know him as Saul at this point, we'll know him as Paul later, has been a believer for over 12 years. His ministry, uh, for the most part, was non-existent for almost a decade. He's been ministering under Barnabas now for a year, but it's in chapter 13 that things really begin to turn. Now the reason I've highlighted that is that God told Saul, Paul, he was going to do something really incredible in his life, but nothing happens. Nothing happens for a decade. And the point is that when God wants to do something incredible in somebody's life, he takes the time to prepare that person for what it is that God has in store. So if you're in that place and you believe that God has told you that he wants to do something in your life and through your life, don't be surprised if God doesn't take some time when it appears that nothing is going on, but he's really working behind the scenes to prepare you for what it is that he has for you. So chapter 13, as we pick it up, there's going to be a major shift in this book. And uh, so much so that it's going to set the, the course for the rest of the book of Acts. Now typically what I like to do is I like to take one chapter each week as we go through, but there is so much in this chapter that we're going to do this in, in, uh, in two weeks. I thought about doing it in, in one week, but I, I felt that you probably had some other things you wanted to do today. So we'll split it up into, into two weeks. And that's where you say, thank you, Jesus. So chapter 13, verse 1, again about 48 AD, uh, 18 years after Jesus has gone back to heaven. Now there, was, there were at Antioch in the church that was their prophets and teachers, Barnabas, he's going to be the lead pastor, and Simeon, who is called Niger, he's going to be a leader in the church, and Lucius of Cyrene, he's also going to be a leader in the church, and Manan, who had been brought up with Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. Uh, this, when it says he's been brought up with Herod, he's actually the, the foster brother of Herod, and we'll talk about that in a few minutes. So this church in Antioch has probably at this point a few thousand believers now, even though they have uh, a few thousand believers, there's something that the Holy Spirit wants to illuminate for us uh, to, to show us what's going on inside of this church, something very special that you see in this church that you would not see in the church down in Jerusalem. So it's going to highlight a couple of the people, but there's thousands of people, but in order to highlight what's going on, is going to tell us about just a couple of them. So verse 1 it says, now there were at Antioch in the church that was their prophets and teachers, Barnabas, we know about him, and Simeon who is called Niger. Now Simeon and Simon are the same name in the Bible. It's sort of like Bob and Bobby. So sometimes uh, you, you hear somebody whose name Simon referred to as Simeon or Simeon as, as Simon. It's the same name. But it, it, was, it was such a common name, especially in Jewish circles, that whenever you called somebody Simeon or Simon, there always had to be a description. So, because um, you say, well, well, where's Simon? They go, well, which one? So they'd always describe, you know, add a description so you knew which one. So for instance, uh, it was in Acts chapter 1, they had Simon, but it said Simon the Zealot. Now Simon the Zealot would be the concealed carry guy, real, real right winger kind of guy, mistrust of the government, my kind of guy. 
but he, he's called Simon the Zealot. Well, then you come to Acts chapter 8, and then there was Simon the Sorcerer, and uh, you know, so they described him. But then you come to Acts chapter 10, and there was Simon the Tanner, and he worked with animal skin, so he's called Simon the Tanner. There's always a description. And then, of course, you can't forget Simon Peter, and we all know who that is. But this one here is called Simeon. Uh, His name is Simeon, but he's called Niger. Now there on your outline, something the Holy Spirit wants to illuminate, what's going on in the church, is that he's called Niger. And Niger there in the original Greek language just means black. Does everybody see that? So he's called Niger. Uh, They would say, uh, they would just say, you know, the black guy. So you'd show up at the church and say, I want to talk to Simeon. They say, which one? He goes, you know, the the black guy. And they go, okay, we know who that is. He, He was the black guy in the church. The Holy Spirit wants us to know that this church did in fact have a black guy in the church. Now that's going to be important for our study today. But um, that's not all this church had. They didn't just have a black guy in the church. They also had Lucius in the church. Now Lucius, he's the next person named. His name means there in your outline, light, bright, and what's that word? White. So they didn't just have a black guy they had a white guy in the church too. Not too shabby. Black guy and a white guy. Now you're all sounding very nervous right now as I say this. Did I tell you we were going to talk about some politically incorrect stuff here today? So here's what's going on. Keep in mind that most of us, when we think about the early church, the first church, we tend to think about the early church based upon our own ethnicity. So for instance, have you ever seen the picture or the painting of the Last Supper? Have you ever seen that? There's several of them. But, but when you look at that, Jesus is very white, he's very pasty, and he has very, very light, long brown hair. Do you remember that picture? And the disciples are, are standing around, and some of them have, actually have blonde hair. Have you ever seen that picture? They've got blonde hair. And, uh, but here's the thing, that's not true. That's not true. The early church was not white European, it was not black African, it was very Middle Eastern. They weren't white and they weren't black. So when there was a white guy or a black guy that showed up the church, everybody noticed. So there, the, the, and so the Holy Spirit is pointing out that in this church, unlike the church in Jerusalem, where everyone would be Jewish, this church is breaking down racial barriers. And the Holy Spirit wants us to know that. And, and we're kind of uncomfortable with that in our culture. And I, I get that. Uh, people come up to us and uh, they'll say to Cheryl and I, they'll say, you know, uh, I was talking to your daughter and I, I don't remember her name, but you know, she's, she, she has, she's, she's, um, you know, the hair and, and they, they don't know the same. And so we finally just stop and say, white, black, or Chinese? <laughs> and they're like, can you say that? Was, we have noticed, we have noticed. <laughs> God has given us this amazing family, and, uh, but, but, but we notice when we walk through a mall, one time we're walking through the mall, and uh, there's a bunch of us. For those of you who don't know, I have 12 kids, and so we're walking through the mall, and so somebody goes up to my daughter, Abby, and they go, are you guys a foster family? <laughs> no, we're just a family, and God's put us all together, and we look very, very unique. But the church in Antioch, the Holy Spirit wants us to know, was breaking down those racial barriers. So we were all one in Christ in this church. So there are a couple of thousand people in the church, but the Holy Spirit wanted to highlight that they had become a multiracial church. So I I wanted to share a verse with you that Peter, 
Peter shares, and I think this is something that's very important for you and I in the American church here in 2019, because it might be something that, that uh, we've missed. And so Peter, there on your outline, he talks about when we said yes to Jesus, uh, there's a couple of things that we need to know. There on your outline he says, but you are a chosen, what's that word? You want to underline that. A royal priesthood. Underline that, you're a royal priesthood. And you are a holy, what's that word? Nation. A people for God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You were once not a people, but now you are the people of God. You've not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. What Peter is saying there, which is very important for us as the American church to remember, is that when you and I, when we said yes to Jesus, we gave up our whiteness, our blackness, our Asianness, our whateverness. We gave that up. And we took on a whole new race. Your race is now Jesus. Now, I wouldn't suggest that when you go to the DMV that you put that down when they ask you. <laughs> but your allegiance is not to your race here. Your allegiance is to the race that you've become. And you're a chosen race. You were chosen by God. And so this church is living that out. They realize that we are one in Christ. Another thing that I think is very important, he also says not only are you a chosen race, but he says that you are a holy, what's that word? Nation? Does it say holy nation? Did I misread it? A holy nation. Now, the reason that's so important, when you said yes to Jesus, you said my nation is heaven. My nation is heaven. That's what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't mean that we're not patriotic. I, I have four honorable discharges. I was a paratrooper in the army, airborne infantry. I love this country and, and, and all of that. But my nation, my number one nation is heaven. It's a holy nation. And that has my allegiance far beyond this nation. And that's important for us. Because in our world today, for for many people who profess to be followers of Jesus, we will give an inordinate amount of time to, uh, of our money and our time to our political party. And, and many people who do that would never participate with what Jesus is doing, whether it's financially or in time. But remember that when you signed up for Jesus, you said, I'm joining this new nation. Uh, does that make sense? It's also important there, and just one thing we're just going to highlight very quickly, Peter, Peter the apostle taught that we are a royal priesthood. Peter taught that there is no longer a priesthood among or above the believers, but that the believers themselves are the priesthood, which is why you don't find priests in the Bible, because you and I are the priests. And uh, Peter was the one who taught that. So many people need to be reminded of that. But what the Holy Spirit wants us to know here in verse 1, and you want to write this down as barriers are broken down, Antioch was the first Gentile multiracial megachurch. And so there, there were a number of people from a number of different races that were part of this church. Well, verse 2, it says, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me 
Barnabas and Saul. And you want to pay attention to Barnabas and Saul. Barnabas is mentioned first. For the work which I have called them. So when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. This, this is not to give a teaching on fasting, but one of the things that we find is that God speaks in a time of fasting. If you need direction or you're making a major decision, you, you always want to take some time and, and, and spend that time, uh, time in prayer and fasting. You know, it was before Cheryl and I moved here to Jupiter, we were praying about where God wanted us to go. And so I remember the, the three days that we spent just praying and asking the Lord to make it very clear where we were to go. There, was, there were a number of different op- opportunities. But the Lord spoke very clearly that we were to come to this tiny little town of Jupiter. Now for those of you who were not here 22 years ago, what you might not know is that the world ended at PGA Boulevard. I'm telling you, there was a sign on I-95, it says, beyond this point there be dragons. I mean, there was nothing. There's nothing but cow pat. How many of you were here that long ago and you remember? Yeah, a bunch of us. And, and so when the Lord called us here, we're like, Lord, why would you call us here? We always thought you'd call us somewhere where there's people. <laughs> and, but what an amazing journey it's been. And he made it so clear that we were to come here. But that was in a time of prayer and fasting where we were alone with the Lord and we let God speak. So they knew uh, that, that as they were spending time with the Lord, they needed to spend that time in prayer and fasting. And it's in that time that the Holy Spirit spoke. And the Holy Spirit called Barnabas and Saul, we will know him as Paul, to be set aside for a very special work. Now, go ahead and write this down. It was the Holy Spirit that does the calling. The church didn't do the calling, they did. It's also important to realize that Barnabas was their lead pastor and had been their pastor for a number of years. And so they all had to hear what the Holy Spirit had to say. Otherwise, it would have made no sense to the congregation. One other thing I put on your outline that's very important for for our study is that this is the first time it's recorded that a church sends anyone out to do missionary work. The church in Jerusalem never sent out missionaries to do missionary work. God had to send persecution on the church and it's caused them to be scattered, but they never intentionally sent out people to go do missionary work. So this is a Gentile church. They are listening to the Holy Spirit. God says, send them out. And so they go and keep in mind, it's still Saul and Barnabas. So verse four, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Let me just put a map up real quick. Antioch right there in the southern part of Turkey. Seleucia, just below Antioch, is actually on the coast. Antioch is not. They get on a ship and they head down to this island called Cyprus and they're going to come into the town of Salamis. And verse 6 it says, and having gone through the Verse, verse 5, when they reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they also had John as their helper, John as their helper. One of the things that Paul would do is because he was Jewish and he had a love for the Jewish people, we find that he would always begin by going to the Jewish synagogues. And, uh, but pay attention to that because what we're going to find, and uh, you want to keep this in mind as we go, it's not recorded that there's any converts when he does that up to this point. So tuck that away. Another thing that we notice is that John Mark, who's the relative of Barnabas, is going with them. John Mark will ultimately write the book of Mark. Verse 6 it says, 
when they'd gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bar-Jesus, I means son of Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Now I want you to underline the word Paulus, we'll come back to that. A man of intelligence, this man summoned Barnabas and Saul. Notice it's Barnabas and Saul. And he sought to hear the word of God. He's seeking to hear the word of God. So a couple of things, if I can just put the map up. Again, they come to Salamis. They make their way through going to all the synagogues. The synagogues would meet on Saturday, the Sabbath. And so um, they, they would go from one town to the next. So this isn't something that they did in two or three weeks. This, this took some time as they would go. From Salamis all the way down to Paphos is about 140 miles. So this, this really took some time as they stopped at each time. Sergius Paulus is the proconsul. Now, you'll remember when Jesus is brought before Pilate, he's the governor, and he has the ability to order Jesus to be crucified. The proconsul would be somebody who would be over somebody like, like Pilate. So, so this is an incredible authority, incredible power at this point. But there is a false prophet, and his name is Bar-Jesus, which means son of Jesus or son of Joshua. Verse 7, he was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, and this man, Sergius Paulus, summoned Barnabas and Saul, and he sought to hear the word of God. So all of a sudden, there's this Gentile, and he wants to hear the word of God. Verse 8, but Elymas, the magician, for so his name is translated, Elymas means wise one, or just it can also mean all-knowing. And so that was sort of a title that he took. The magician, so his name is translated, was opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. So he doesn't want this man to hear about Jesus. So Paul, verse 9, says, but Saul, who was also known as Paul, you want to underline the word Paul in your Bible. This is going to be a turning point here. Saul, who was also known as Paul, and then also keep in mind, filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze on him, on this Elymas or Bar-Jesus, and said, you are full of all deceit and fraud. You are the son of the devil. And I've underlined that. It's kind of a neat title, kind of warming up the crowd. You enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight, crooked the straight ways of the Lord? Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind, and I've underlined the word blind, and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. Verse 12, I love. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened, and being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Well, this is an, an interesting paragraph, and we read through this, but this is a, a part where if you're reading a common commentary or you're listening to a pastor teach, they'll really take some time on this. And the, the reason being, uh, here Paul, he calls this man to his face publicly, and he says, you son of the devil. And it tells us that Paul was filled with the Holy Spirit when he says this. So this is something that the Holy Spirit is leading Paul to do publicly to call out this man. And on the one hand, what we see is it, it's, if somebody doesn't want to receive the Lord, that's their choice. 
But it's a very heavy sin when somebody tries to block somebody from actually hearing about the Lord. It's something that God takes very serious. And in this case, God sends some judgment his way. This Elymas, who has been spiritually blind, is now going to be physically blind. It's not recorded that he ever repents and comes to the Lord. But the reason that commentators stop and they take time to talk about this is because when Paul calls him, you son of the devil, what Paul is doing is very politically incorrect for our culture. You see, you and I live in a culture where many times we put politeness over truth. And we realize, and pastors will share, that they know that there are certain people who are false teachers. But we know if we stand up and we say, this person that you're following, that you're listening to, this is a false teacher. The response from the congregation isn't typically, thank you so much for for being spiritually or biblically astute enough to point out somebody who is off the beaten path. Typically what happens in our culture when a pastor calls out somebody who is a false teacher, the response from the congregation is, well, you know, we're all entitled to our own opinions and you see it this way and they see it that way. And I'm not talking about differences of opinion. There are some people what they teach is no longer part of, 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 of the gospel. And, but if, if I or any pastor stand up and say, this person is a false teacher, the response is never, thank you. It's like, oh, you're just a bitter, grumpy old man. You just don't like anybody other than, than, than yourself. And, and you get that. And, uh, and, and that's not to our benefit in our culture because the Bible says in the last days, it doesn't say that the last days will be a time of great uh, truth and theological accuracy. It tells us that the apostasy will come first before the day of the Lord. There'll be a great falling away. Jesus said there will be false teachers and false prophets in the last days. So, so it's going to be rampant. But the difficult part in our culture is if you stand up and you say that, uh, you're, you're not considered as a, somebody speaking the truth, just a grumpy person. Does that make sense? But in keeping with Paul here, speaking under the Holy Spirit, he did call out publicly. So what I've done is I've written down a list of names that I want to share with you today of false teachers <laughs> that I'm not going to share with you because um, here's what I know. If I did, some of you would be offended and you'd leave the church. But if you stay and you hear God's word enough, maybe you'll be able to discern for yourself between truth and error. And that that's my hope. That's my hope. So, um, so far so good? Okay. So there's a couple of things here that I, I think are very interesting. First of all, uh, this is in verse 9, you notice it says, in verse 9 it says, but Saul, who was also known as Paul. Um, in the original language, it's more Saul, also known as Paul. But you want to write this down. This is the first time the name Paul is used in the Bible. Up to this point, he's only been Saul, but but here he becomes Paul. Everything changes right here for Paul. And from this point on, we're only going to know him as Paul. Paul's first miracle was pronouncing blindness. And you want to write that down. His first miracle was pronouncing blindness. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 9 as we were studying through Saul? 
now Paul, was going to Damascus and he was going to arrest Christians. He encounters the Lord. He hits the ground. Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, well, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus. He took it very personal. And do you remember what happened to Saul on that day for the next three days? Blindness, blindness. Now that's very interesting. He was blind for three days. And this is going to be the first miracle that, that Paul does, is to pronounce judgment on this person, just as blindness was pronounced on him. It's also interesting as you read through the book of Acts, Paul's been teaching, he's been going synagogue to synagogue, but the first recorded convert for Paul was a Gentile. And you want to write that down. First recorded convert was a Gentile. Again, gone through all the synagogues, but it doesn't mention any converts. But here there is a, somebody who, um, who is a Gentile and he becomes converted. Now it's also interesting to me, and I think Paul is noticing, I'm sure that, that this Paulus was impacted when he saw this Elymas blinded. But it's interesting to me that in verse 12 what we're told it says there, but when the proconsul believed what when he saw had happened, but he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. And I've underlined that. What catches him isn't so much the miracle. You want to write this down. He was amazed at the teaching. And that's what God used. Miracles are great, but God uses the teaching. Now, the, the reason this is so fascinating to me is, do you remember when Paul was converted He's on his way to Damascus, he's blinded, and then God comes to this man named Ananias and says to Ananias, I want you to go pray for this man who's known as Saul. And God tells Ananias a little bit about Paul or Saul's calling in the future. And so there on your outline it says, but the Lord said to him, go for he is a chosen instrument of mine, speaking about Saul, to bear my name before the Gentiles, and I want you to underline Gentiles, and kings and the sons of Israel. What the Lord told him and revealed is that his ministry would be to the Gentiles first. In that culture, what was first mentioned told you what was uh, the priority. So when we were going through, we'd see Barnabas and Paul, Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas was in charge. Here when he says, he will be my witness to the Gentiles, that's God's way of saying this is going to be his primary ministry, first to the Gentiles, then to kings, and then lastly also to the sons of Israel. So it's interesting, as Paul has gone through the synagogues, there's been no fruit. But he comes to this place, there's a Gentile, and the Gentile is the first person who actually becomes converted. This awakens something in Paul. Now what's also interesting is the first person who becomes a believer under Paul's ministry, notice verse 7, it says, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus. Do you see the name Paulus? Paulus and Paul are the same name. It's like Bob and Bobby. Some people hold, you'll hear some say that it was common in those days for a, a Roman who was a Jew to take both a Jewish name and then also to take a Roman name. And that could be the truth. There's no biblical reference of that in the Bible. But what we do notice here is that from this point on, Paul will be known as Paul. And it just so happens that his name changes when his first convert happens to have the same name as him or Paul. 
the idea, some hold that what Paul does, his name is Saul, this Paulus becomes a believer. Saul takes the name Paul as his name from this time on, referencing the first convert, the idea is that Paul wanted to have a perpetual reminder that God had called him specifically to reach the Gentiles. So from this time on, he will be known by the name of his first convert. You find that interesting? And so is that true? Well, uh, it, you know, uh, what we do know is that from this time on his name is Paul. So what you do with that is, is what you do with that. But he gets that he is now called to the Gentiles because he's had no fruit in ministry up until this point. So then we come to verse 13. Now in verse 13 it says, Now Paul and his companions put out to sea from Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia, but John, that's John Mark, left them and returned to Jerusalem. So there's a couple of interesting things. Let me put a map up real quick. He's now known as Paul. He leaves Cyprus there at Paphos. He goes to the north, north and he comes to this area called Pamphylia. And uh, it's going to be the area also known as Galatia. And we'll talk about that next week. But there's a couple of things that happen here that are shifts in the story. Notice verse 13. It says, now Paul and his companions. Up until this point, it's been Barnabas and Saul. Now it's Paul and his companions. Barnabas isn't even mentioned anymore, at least not not right here. So the first thing that we notice is that it's at this point that Paul becomes the clear leader, and you want to write that down. Paul's now the leader. Many people believe that it's this event where he becomes not just Saul, but Paul the apostle. So from here on, it's going to be Paul and Barnabas, but no longer Barnabas and Paul. Another thing that we notice is that John Mark, which is Barnabas's nephew or cousin, leaves the, the trip at this point. Verse 13 ends by saying that John left them and returned to Jerusalem. So Paul is now the clear leader and John Mark leaves. Now John Mark will later on write the book of Mark. Barnabas is okay with Paul becoming the leader. However, some suggest that John Mark leaves because he's not okay with Uncle Barnabas no longer being in charge. Now Paul's in charge and he doesn't like that. So some suggest that he gets mad and he leaves. Some suggest that he's just homesick, and that's certainly a possibility. Uh, Some people suggest that John Mark understands the area of Galatia that they're going into, which is a very hostile area, and the truth is going into that area, you might go in, but you might not come out. It was a very uh, hostile, treacherous place. But what we do know, and I want you to write this down, is it's at this point that John Mark goes home. So there in your outline, a couple of things. First of all, we know that, that uh, this Barnabas here, or this John Mark is the cousin of Barnabas, and I put from Colossians 4, it says Barnabas's cousin Mark. So he's, he's uh, defined that way. Mark leaves the mission trip, and this really bugs Paul. And Mark doesn't walk away from the faith, he just walks away from the missions trip. But what we notice is that Paul, you know, we think about the apostles and we think about them being so spiritual and many of us come from a background when you see the apostles, they have a halo over their head. But what we're going to learn about Paul is Paul's still growing. He is the apostle. But at this point, he has written off Mark. He's done with this person. He doesn't want to have anything to do with him. And uh, we know that because three years later, there on your outline, in 51 AD, 
they decide to go on another missionary journey. And notice what it says. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, which is his nephew or cousin, with them. But Paul did not think it was wise to take him because he had, and uh, what's the word there that Paul uses, or, or that deserted? Paul thinks he's been, he was deserted them in Pamphylia and did not continue with them in the work. And as you read that story, what you find is that their disagreement about Mark is so sharp that Paul and Barnabas stop speaking to one another. It's a fascinating story. We'll read it when we get there. But they divide. Barnabas goes one way with John Mark, and uh, Paul goes another way. Barnabas will invest in John Mark, and, uh, and um, what we find is that although they've separated, years go by, Barnabas has been invested in John Mark, one day he will write the book of Mark. But about 20 years later, in 66 AD, there on your outline, Paul is writing to Timothy, and here's what he says. Only Luke is with me. Pick up, who's he want to have him pick up? Mark, and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. I love that. I love that. Because Paul initially writes him off. But God didn't write him off. And Barnabas just chooses to invest. And he invests in, Bar- he invests in John Mark. John Mark grows. He becomes more stable. And, and what I get from that is that we need to be really careful who we write off. Because God might be doing something great behind the scenes. So let me ask you a question. Have, have you ever been written off by somebody? It's a painful thing, isn't it? And, and, and yet, have you ever written off somebody? It could be that God is doing something behind the scenes that you can't see, and we see that here. You know, in my life, when people have written me off, it's because they really missed it. But when I write somebody off, well, that's just the judgment of God. You know, it's just a, <laughs> that's not true. But you don't go very far in ministry and life before somebody writes you off. But you be careful that you're not so fast to write somebody off. Mark didn't leave the faith. He left the missions trip. And Paul wrote him off. But 20 years later, Paul came to the place and he said, you know, if there's one person I can trust, it's Mark. Isn't that awesome how the Lord brought all that back around? Well, we're going to close with that. Did you find that at least interesting today? Good. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for this congregation and thank you for the things that you're sharing with us. And, and Lord, the things that we need to take to heart, you know, that just the, the, we want to be that church in Antioch that breaks down the barriers. We want to be the church in Antioch that has the ability to send out those to take the gospel. We, we want to be those who grow in our faith, but we don't want to be those who too quickly decide to permanently write somebody off because you might be doing something behind the scenes. So Lord, help us to be the people of God that you've called us to be as we represent you in this time and place where we live. I pray, God, that you keep each and every one of us till we meet again. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.